Well, this is the second to last week in our series through First uh, John. This is the twelfth week, as I recall, in this letter. And if you are new with us, what we do is we open up the Bible, we go through it kind of section at a section at a time, rather. We, we realize that, um, you know, as with any book or, or film or story or novel or whatever it is, if you kind of jump in in the middle, you can often lose track of what's going on and really lose the context. And so we're committed to expository preaching, again, going through the text of Scripture, book by book. We do that about 90% of the time. This is the 12th week, uh, again, in this letter of 1 John, which I'm really thankful for the way God has used it in my own heart and in the life of our church, and uh, just pray that He'll continue to bear fruit uh, through that. I got a text this last week from my oldest son who lives in Southern California. You know how it is with the text. You, you don't often know, um, you know what the tone is. Text can be hard to read, like, but this was actually pretty easy to read. I could discern that he was really hurting. And we went on, he went on to tell me through a series of texts that uh, a very good friend of his, very close friend of his, who graduated from the seminary that he is, my, my son is currently attending, um, graduated from seminary in, in May, uh, went off to study, to get a PhD in ancient Semitic languages at a university in Texas, and uh, just a couple of months into his uh, tenure there, just totally renounced the faith. Said, I don't, don't believe in God, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore, and of course my son uh, his friend was grieving, you know, deeply grieving for this man. He has a wife, his wife was the, uh, the, the leader of the, the, sem- the seminary wives uh, club or whatever at seminary, and herself a devoted follower of Christ. They have two young kids. And so my son was, was obviously was very, very uh, hurt, hurting over this. And, um, and, you know, of course, deconstruction stories are, are, are nothing new. Uh, it's kind of all the rage these days. Now, deconstruction doesn't always lead to deconversion, but it sometimes does. And even though there's not really one thing, there's not one sort of silver bullet or or one response that people give when they deconvert, there is a theme that really has risen to the top in terms of frequency. And that is, I just can't really accept, with all the religions in the world, 10,000 religions or so, I just can't accept that, that this one person, Jesus, is actually the only way to be right with God. And of course, you know, our our world is getting smaller in the sense that um, it's easier to travel places, there's there's greater accessibility uh, than ever before. Uh, You can be on the other side of the world and just in a matter of uh, 24 hours, um, you know, be back home. And so with that, I mean, people are being exposed to um, folks with all kinds of beliefs, and all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of religions. And, and so some are having a hard time buying that Jesus is really that different than any other so-called prophet. One pastor and apologist writes, It's much easier to remain certain of your beliefs when you are not in personal contact with people who believe differently. But when you encounter people with different beliefs, and when those people's sincerity and devotion possibly put yours to shame, things become quite a bit more difficult. Now, this is especially true of millennials and Gen Z. This is kind of anyone from the age of roughly 10 to 38, Um, like my son's friend that I mentioned. Um, In contrast to previous generations, Gen Z, millennials, they work and they go to school with, they study with, they hang out with people who think and believe very, very differently than they do. And that's actually a very good thing in terms of, for the sake of gospel advancement. Uh, But it does um, 
sometimes spark questions, particularly about the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, again, this is, you know, this is nothing new. For two uh, millennia, there have been those who have denied, defamed, and uh, sought to discredit Jesus. You read some of his, uh, the exchanges with the religious leaders of his day. You know, there have always been, since the birth of Jesus, there have been those who sent, who, who have been, uh, you know, determined to, again, deny, defame, and discredit him. Uh, this was, has been happen, happening again since Jesus' birth, and this was actually a false teaching, this uh, discrediting and dis- defaming Jesus that was uh, very prevalent in the early church, and one that the Apostle John uh, has addressed throughout this letter that we've been studying for the past 12 weeks. And in the passage we're in this morning, John addresses a particular false teaching, I'll explain it in, in just a minute. Um, but as in doing so, he reasserts the uniqueness of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, and he has witnesses to back up his claims. And so this morning, uh, from the text, we're going to answer three questions. Why should we trust in Jesus alone, among all the other so-called gods and prophets? Secondly, what's at stake in terms of our belief in Christ? And finally, what does Jesus offer that no one else can. And, and what's kind of interesting about this passage, really beautiful about it, is it unfolds in three acts, if you will. Uh, the first act is, I've called the witnesses. The second act is the deliberation. And the final act is the summary judgment. So let's start by looking at the witnesses. Let me, we're actually going to be covering 6 through 12 this morning, but let me start by reading verse 5, which is the last section in the last section we looked at last week. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. Uh, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. So, again, we're, as we continue to work our way through this book, we have to uh, realize, of course, it all was meant to be read at once. It all fits together. And uh, in the verse that we ended up with last week, verse 5, that I just read, John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God is one who overcomes the world. Well, how, how so? Well, he overcomes the power of darkness in this world, meaning that Uh, This person never needs to fear the control of Satan or his minions. Uh, She rejects the world's philosophies and beliefs, the belief system of the world that lead to loneliness, emptiness, and a purposelessness. And so in that sense, she overcomes the world. And he overcomes the temptation to disbelieve and actually stands firm uh, in the gospel. So Jesus promised that those who overcome will eat from the tree of life, They will be unharmed by the second death. They will be given a new name. They will have authority over the nations. They will be clothed in white garments. They will co-reign with Jesus himself. They will be made a permanent pillar in the house of God. And all this happens, Jesus says, by believing on him. Well, lest there be any confusion about who this Jesus is, John says in verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by the water, 
but by the blood. Now you say, what, what in the world does that mean? Why, why emphasize, you know, not just by water, but by blood? Well, the phrase he came by water is a reference to Jesus' baptism, where, which is really the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in earnest, we might say. Um, and the phrase he came by blood is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of blood for the sins of those who believe. And this idea that that Jesus' ministry began in earnest, kind of by the blood, by the water, rather, you know, by baptism, that was pretty well received. So that that was not that disputed. But there was a group within the church, um, the churches of Ephesus, who were saying that Jesus was just a normal guy, just a regular human, until the baptism. And at that point, divinity came upon him, and that same divinity then left him shortly after the baptism, but long before he would die on the cross. So really what they were saying was, Jesus was, again, just a normal prophet. He was not God in the flesh. He was not the eternal Son of God, but someone upon whom divinity was manifested. One guy in particular saying this stuff was a guy by the name of Serenthus, um, who was a Jewish man who was born in, in Egypt, but actually moved then to Ephesus. And his life overlapped the life of the Apostle John. And so both kind of uh, were, were, were leading and ministering toward the end of the first century. You know, if you pay attention, and I'm not, I'm not a big superhero guy, you know, but um, if you watch superhero movies or you like this sort of thing, you know that every superhero has kind of one arch nemesis, right? One, one main rival. Superman had Lex Luthor and Batman had... Uh, Joker, right, and um, uh, let's see, Captain America had Red Hawk, I think, or something, um, Red Skull, thank you, uh, and then um, Thor had Loki. I have no idea what I'm talking about, to be honest with you, but I, I checked with Pastor Brandon who confirmed these things. Um, but, but superheroes have, you know, have their, their main, you know, sort of nemeses, right? It's even like that with cartoon characters. Scooby-Doo had the Creeper and Tom had Jerry, and you know Wiley Coyote was always after the Roadrunner, and so on. Well, now, now the Apostle John was not a superhero, and he had a lot of opponents, but he had one particular guy that was the real sort of thorn in his side, and it was this guy, Serenthus. Serenthus was almost spiteful in the way that he combated the, the Apostle John. John said, of course, as you know famously in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? This is talking about Jesus Himself. He's forever existed. In the beginning was the Word. And Serenthus would come along and say, no. No, this, he was not born of a virgin. He's not the, the eternal Son of God. He's not God in the flesh. He was just a, a human upon whom divinity came at one point in his life. Things actually became so acrimonious at one point, so contentious, that according to second century historian Irenaeus, the Apostle John was at a bathhouse in Ephesus. This is kind of what you did. And uh, he heard that Serenthus had come into that same bathhouse. He ran out of the bathhouse naked, shouting, Let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. And so he's saying, Look, I, I don't even want to be under the same building. I don't want to be in the same complex as this guy, because God's judgment may soon fall upon him. So the apostles had no tolerance for false teaching or any perversion of the truth, which I think is something you know, that we can definitely learn from. But here in response to Serenthus and others, John says that Jesus Christ, verse 6, 
came not by water only, but by water and the blood. In other words, John was saying in a way that would have made total sense to Serenthus and his followers, Jesus was fully and completely the eternal Son of God, yes, at His baptism, but before His baptism, throughout His entire life, and, and even at His death. So there was no moment when, during the incarnation, the, the earthly life of Jesus, when Jesus wasn't fully God and fully human. This is what John's saying. He was fully God and fully human. Not just during a certain period, but throughout His earthly life. If Jesus were only human and not God, so if He were only human then His atoning sacrifice on the cross would not have been sufficient to take away the sin and guilt of humanity. Only the God-man could bear that weight, could satisfy God's wrath against sin. But if He were purely God and not at all human, then He would not have been a suitable substitute for humanity. And so John says that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, come down in human flesh. And to put an exclamation point on it, we might say he calls the Holy Spirit to the witness, witness stand. John says in the last part of verse 6, And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So the Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Son of God in, in multiple ways, but you know, at least two in John's mind. One, he descended on Jesus at Jesus' baptism. The Gospels record this. And he continues to confirm in the hearts of believers that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the only Savior and the Son of God. And then he goes on to say, John that is in verses 7 and 8 again, he says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Um, now, let me just say this. For I, I don't know how many of you have the King James Bible. I know we have a couple of families at least, maybe a few folks who use that as their, their regular Bible. Um, if you do have a King James Bible, you will notice, notice that there is a, another phrase in your Bible that doesn't appear in what I just read. Um, there's a, a phrase that says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. You may be wondering, if you have a King James Bible, why did, why did he skip that? Why didn't he read that? Well, that particular phrase did not appear in a single early manuscript until somewhere after the 10th century. So we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it didn't surface at all in a single early manuscript, not a single Greek manuscript. It did appear somewhere between, you know, after the 10th century and before the 14th century. Um, but it was, again, not part of the early documents. And virtually every biblical scholar agrees that this was added later on, which is why if you have an NIV or an ESV or... New American Standard or whatever, you'll, you'll see either a footnote or that verse won't appear. But what we have here, um, what we have that I just read was, again, part of the earliest manuscripts, and that's powerful enough. So even though John was most likely at Jesus' baptism, even though he was a witness to Jesus' miracles, uh, even though we know that John was there when Jesus was arrested and uh, persecuted and marched to Golgotha, um, and we know John was he was there after Jesus, I mean, with Jesus after the resurrection, um, had dinner with him and so on. John doesn't expect his word to be the clincher. He had seen plenty, and his word was reliable, and his word was weighty, John's that is, but he doesn't leave it at that. In ancient uh, Jewish culture, Hebrew culture, going all the way back to the Old Testament, a matter of dispute 
like the one that John and Serenthus had, for example, was to be settled by witnesses. Truth was established by two or three witnesses. And here's what John says. This is our first point this morning that John is making here. The living God has testified that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh. And the living God cannot lie. So John John fully expects people to take his word and to believe what he's saying to them, but he doesn't want to, to... you know, leave himself as the ultimate sort of clincher here. He says, no, I want you to know that God himself has testified that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh, and the living God actually cannot lie. So to those under John's care, under his spiritual tutelage, who are wrestling with doubt, confused because their friends are leaving the church, some of their friends are leaving the faith, and to those who bought into this false teaching of the day, especially in the teaching of Serenthus, um, again, who denied the deity of Jesus, John makes it very, very clear. God has spoken on this issue. God has spoken on this matter. He has testified to the identity and person of Jesus. And because of God's character, He cannot lie. He is holy and pure, and there is in Him no darkness, only light. So, verse 9, what John's saying is, if you're going to believe anybody's testimony about this, and I know some of you are eager to learn, you want to know if you're going to believe anybody's testimony, why not defer to the testimony of God Himself, whose testimony is greater than any human witness? Now, we live in, in what's called a pluralistic age. Plural, you know, the word just means many. And that means there are many religions and many so-called gods, and many so-called saviors, many paths, many ways, many truths. And this is why you hear people all the time talk about my truth. I just have to get my truth out there. And two people can have diametrically opposed, quote, truths, and if they both believe them with sincerity, then we are called to accept both as truth. And so there are many ways, many paths, many truths, and so on, and... John says that there is actually a voice of truth. There is actually a God who is authoritative and cannot lie, a voice that trumps all others. What the God of the universe says prevails over every other truth claim. If you ever wonder, or if you ever have a moment where you think, can this really be true? I mean, can, can it really be true that Christianity is the the real faith and worshiping the true God? Is Jesus actually the eternal Son of God? You ever have a moment when you say, with all the religions in the world, thousands of religions, can we really say with any certainty that Jesus is the only way? Well, if you're having those questions, first of all, that's okay. That's okay. It's good to wrestle with deep things. It's good to ask hard questions. It's good to seek truth, right? And so, but otherwise, our faith kind of remains at the infant stages. So wrestling with doubts is, in some respects, like adding antibodies to your spiritual immune system. If you never, ever wrestle with the hard questions, then when you do deal with a tragedy or a crisis or some horrible event, then sometimes you find, yourselves, you find yourself crushed. Because you've never done the hard work of, of wrestling. So, yeah, it's, it, ask hard questions. 
And this is a place, Capshaw Baptist Church is a place where you're welcome to ask hard questions. Skeptics and cynics and investigators and so on are welcome here. My son, whom I mentioned a moment ago, preached his first sermon at the, week, at the church where he's serving as the interim director of family and student ministries, uh, just north of San Diego. And, uh, and they don't let very many people preach there. It was a really uh, big deal. And, and, and he and I, my son and I, talked much about it beforehand and reviewed you know, what he was going to talk about. But he, he decided, before I'd ever had any you know, input, he, my son decided he was going to preach on a psalm of lament. I said, wow, then that's, that's really, really bold. I would never have done that for my first sermon. Um, a psalm where the, the writer is actually complaining to God, wrestling with God, arguing with God, begging God to reveal himself, and so on. Um, and my son did just such a beautiful job, and the Christ connection was so rich. And, um, but what he, what he said in that sermon was, the point that he made was the living God can handle our honesty. The living God can handle our questions. He's not put off by our wrestling. He is the faithful one. He will always be true to His character. He can handle our questions and our doubts. But at some point, at some point, if we believe in God, we have to settle on this. Jesus is all of those things that I mentioned. He is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh. He is the God-man who died on the cross for our sins. If we believe in God, we must conclude that because God Himself testifies to that truth. Let me say it another way, maybe at the risk of being not intentionally controversial, but if we re reject these things about Jesus, we actually don't really believe in God. This is what John says in verse 10. Brings us to what I've called the deliberation. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So this is the fifth time in this letter that John accuses his opponents of being liars or making God out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony concerning God's Son. So even though I said it's good to wrestle with doubts, it's good to, to ask hard questions, absolutely. Those questions, when we, we're looking in the right place, strengthen our faith. Um, it's not good to come down on a position of disbelief. That's tantamount. Disbelieving in Jesus is tantamount to calling God a liar and actually denying that there is a God. This is how we will be judged. What do we make of Jesus? I've called this the deliberation part because nothing is more important than how we answer the question, who is Jesus? What does Jesus say himself when he's confronted with all these people arguing about him? He says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because that is the fundamental question we all must ask. No conclusions that we reach about anything else have greater significance. We may see people around us who are kind, and I'm sure we do, I do, kind, polite, sweet, and gentle, sacrificial, and generous, but if they have rejected Jesus as the eternal Son of God and the only Savior of the world, they're actually shaking their fist at God, calling Him a liar, 
and denying his very existence. John Calvin writes, Though people may in other parts of their lives be like angels, their sanctity is diabolical as long as they reject Christ. So here's our second point this morning. Disbelief in Jesus as the eternal Son of God is not a harmless position that God respects. It is a personal attack on the character of God. Now, I put respect in quotation marks because, you know, of course, we live in a day and age where the greatest virtue of all is to be uh, uh, perpetually open-minded, to never actually land anywhere, to be tolerant of everything, acceptant of everything. And we might be inclined to believe that God feels the same way. God thinks, you know what, what I want from you more than anything else is never to actually uh, say that anything is right or wrong. Uh, never really come down with any hard convictions. Just be open-minded and, and be acceptable of all positions. Well, in this letter, John has made it clear that salvation is found in Christ alone. All complete, competing truth claims must be rejected. Now, of course, yes, we love and we respect and we treasure those who have beliefs that are very different than ours. Who believe and look and say things and feel about things in ways that are very different than we do. They are image bearers of God that we love and we, we pray for and we come alongside and engage in relationship. But John makes it clear again that Jesus is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh and refusing to believe in Jesus is actually refusing to believe in God. I was talking to a man recently who said he believed in God, um, said he always had. But he said that about Jesus, you know, he believed that he was a good man and, and a great teacher, but certainly not divine, certainly not the eternal Son of God. And I said to him, I said to this guy, then actually you're an atheist. Oh, he was all bent out of shape over then. I wasn't trying to make him mad, um, but it really provoked him. Um, he said, I believe in God. I just told you I believe in God. How can you call me an atheist? I said, if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is the eternal Son of God, by God's own testimony, then you, in fact, are an atheist. We've looked at the witnesses. We've looked at the deliberation, uh, what God has spoken regarding Jesus. Well, what else do we say? I said we would look at the summary judgment. Look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So notice there's a bit of a play on words here. God gave us eternal life in His Son, and whoever has the Son has life presently. So eternal life, in, in some sense, is yes, in the future. It's our great hope that we will be with Christ forever on a new earth and so on. Eternal life, that future dimension is given to those who believe on Jesus, those who confess their sins, trust in Him alone for salvation. Those, John says, even though they will die physically, they will be forever with God. But there's another aspect to this. The benefits to believing on Christ are not purely future. The one who believes in Jesus has life right now, John says. Present tense. 
In other words, those who believe in Jesus will enjoy this resurrection life on this side of death as well. So that brings us to our third question. I said I'd answer, what does Jesus offer that no one else can? Here's our final point this morning. What Jesus offers is not simply a distant hope, but new life right now. So as far as God's concerned, there are only two types of people in the world. Not rich and poor, not black and white, not northern and southern, not educated, uneducated. We could list a number of other things. There are only those who are dead and those who are alive. Those who are spiritually dead, in Christ, under the wrath of God, and those who have been made alive in Christ by faith in the one God sent. And so this distinction, spiritually alive or spiritually dead, is what John is referring to here. And spiritual death is not something we suffer because of something we do. The Bible makes it clear every person is actually born spiritually dead. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 about all humanity, we are by nature children of wrath. By nature just means by birth. We, we, we come into that we are born at odds with God. No one is born a Christian. No one is born a friend of God. We're born God's enemies, longing for a relationship with God, the kind of relationship that we were created to enjoy. But we come into this world nonetheless estranged from God. And because we're at odds with the God who made us, this is why we spend so much of our lives trying to make something of ourselves, trying to prove that we're worth something, that we're worthy of being loved, deserving of acceptance you know, from God and others. We think if I can just kind of clean up this area of my life and get rid of a couple of these bad habits, if I just do better in some areas, then God will approve of me and, and I can get rid of this sort of lingering guilt and shame that I feel. But we're never ever actually able to clean up those areas or make that desired progress. It's three steps forward and two steps back, or two steps forward and three steps back at times. Well, Jesus wants us to know He didn't come to help us become better people. He didn't come with a personal improvement plan. He didn't come uh, to help us get our lives all cleaned and sorted out. He came to actually give us new life, a life that is possible because of His death and resurrection. So on the cross, Jesus took the sin and the shame and the guilt of those who believe. And when he was raised again, the Father confirmed that Jesus' payment for our sins was sufficient so that when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we are completely and totally forgiven. And not only that, we're made new. We're made brand new people. Now you might say, well, what if I don't want a new life? I kind of like my life the way that it is. I remember as a kid uh, being told over and over and over about be warned about hell and, and told about the coming of Christ and, you know, get your life ready and be ready. And I remember there were many times when I thought, I'm ashamed to admit now, like, I don't want Jesus to come right now. I'm really enjoying my life as it is. I got all these things to look forward to and I don't really want Jesus to come. Well, there are people, I'm sure, maybe in this room who say, you know what, I don't really need a new life. Like, I'm really actually pretty content with my life the way that it is. But I think when we dig a little deeper, start looking at things at the heart level, we see what that separation from God really means. We notice something. We're all desperate for peace. 
we all struggle, apart from Christ, struggle with guilt and shame. We all want a sense of settledness in this, this uneven life. And I meet with people all the time, sometimes to pray with them, sometimes to offer biblical counsel, sometimes just casual conversations. Uh, it's a great privilege that I enjoy as a pastor and what I love to do. But one thing I've noticed over the years is that things are almost never the way they seem on the surface. Almost never. Spontaneous laughter, you know, the person who always laughs, you just say, hey, how you doing? He or she laughs. Spontaneous laughter often hides a deep anger. And I've seen this over and over and over again. Smiles on the outside cover hearts that are hurting and often alone. A posture of confidence tends to disguise feelings of inadequacy and self-loathing. You know, the people that you think in your... This is the most confident person I've ever known. That person struggles with self-doubt and inadequacy. Couples that are sometimes the most affectionate in person, in public rather. They fight and war when at home. The lives that look best on the outside are sometimes the ones filled with the most pain and the most emptiness. Instagram, as you know, is no indication of how things really are because it just disguises and hides the truth. But for those who have never run to Jesus and been reconciled to God, there is the added pressure to justify one's existence, to manage one's life, to somehow stave off guilt, and to slake that thirst of longing for relationship with God. Maybe you're one who says, I don't need the life that Jesus offers. I've got this under control. Well, think about this. How nice would it be to really know that the God of the universe is for you and not against you? That's only in Christ. Can we know that? How, how nice would it be to, to know that your sins and your offenses, the big ones and the small ones, the hidden ones, will never be held against you ever again? How nice would it be to have the freedom to admit your failures without constantly trying to show that you've you got to justify yourself, why you're right and everyone else is wrong? How nice would it be to stop worrying about your image, to be set free from the enslavement of other people's opinion of you? How incredible would it be to be indwelled by the Spirit of God, filling you with the power of God from above, not so you can you know, leap every building or accomplish every goal or whatever, but so that you actually have the power and ability to love other people the way that God's commanded. How nice would it be to have a settled sense of peace? I mean, sure, ups and downs and, and heartaches and hardships, but a settled sense of peace. That's the life that Christ came to give. That's the new life that He offers. If you've received Jesus Christ by faith, you are truly alive and you enjoy all the benefits that I just described. If you're in Christ, you are cherished by God, loved by Him, approved by Him right now. So that means if God approves of you, it doesn't really matter what anyone else says about you. What the living God says about you is what matters. And if you are in Christ, God says that you are holy and blameless in His sight because of Jesus. By contrast, though, John says at the end of verse 12, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If you've not received Jesus Christ, regardless of how religious or friendly or polite 
or active or altruistic you are, you are nothing more than a dead man walking, spiritually speaking. You are right now under the wrath of God. You are separated from God. And you will one day come under God's righteous and furious judgment to experience condemnation at the resurrection of the dead. But it doesn't have to be that way. Today, if you are apart from Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and new life, you can do that today. You can, you can put your faith, you can believe on Christ, turn from your sin even today. John says to Serenthus and that circle outside it and to us by extension, don't be fooled about who this Jesus is. He is the eternal Son of God, God in the flesh the Savior of all who will believe, but the one who is coming one day to judge the living and the dead. And John says, don't be duped. Don't be confused. Trust in this Jesus today. And I pray that's the case for every one of us this morning. Let's pray.